see some of our folks who have been traveling back. And um, it's a big Sunday, I guess, right? Matt and Josephine appear to be back, so that's a big Sunday. Welcome back. And uh, I guess it's, what, Chinese New Year's last night? You know, and then it's Super Bowl today. And then it's the Usher halftime show. Well, praise God, Christ is King. And we have a salvation and we have a gospel and we have a good news that is greater than all of that and sets us free from all of that because Christ alone saves. And uh, this morning as we come to God's word, our theme this morning as we transition out of the tail end of the Lord's Prayer and continue in the Sermon on the Mount is on righteous leadership. What is a righteous leader? What is the righteous leadership that we need? And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has been showing us that one of the essential ways his heavenly Father loves and leads and cares for his beloved children in the midst of this fallen world as we travel through he leads and he loves us and he cares for us through prayer it is essential and it is primary and it is essential and primary where prayer is an intentional and humble and daily dependence on god not for some of our needs, but for all of our needs. And this is also known as faith. Trusting and depending not in ourselves, but on the Lord, not for just where I'm going to be on a Sunday, but for my paycheck, my rent, my food, my sin, every aspect of my life coming under the Lordship and the leadership of God. That's what a Lord is. A Lord is someone who leads and feeds and protects and cares for those who are under his oversight and his care. And as we come to the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows his disciples and us a man, a woman, a child. Our greatest need is for God's righteous leadership in our lives. Everything we need, it comes down to that one truth and one reality. Who is leading your life. When Jesus shows us, without God, we are lost. If your GPS is broken, you will always end up in the wrong place. And so that raises the question, do you pray? And if you do pray, who or what is leading your life? And our big truth for this morning, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God leads his beloved children in Christ, and he does so rightly, and he does so in prayer. And so if we're not praying, that also raises the question, who or what is leading our life? And this is something that King David was well aware of. And that's why he writes in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
And how does the Lord lead and care and restore his sheep? Not by leaving them. He loves and cares for us by leading us. Leading us very specifically in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And as the psalmist goes on and says, immediately after, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You are with me. That's out of order. Okay. But what King David points out is as we travel through this fallen world, the Lord's paths of righteousness inevitably will take us through some dark valleys. And the comfort and the goodness that we have is that we are not walking alone, but he is the one who is leading us. And he does so for his name's sake. And this is the good news of God's word. As we come to John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That's what's on the front cover of your bulletin, right? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so Jesus' words, they ask of us, what are you walking in? Are you walking in the darkness or are you walking in the light? Well, there's only one way to walk in the light. If you're not walking with Jesus, if you're not following him, if you're not listening to his voice, you are walking in darkness. But we don't have to. Because he is a leader who is gracious and good. And he cares for his sheep. And as we come to the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus shows his disciples and us that the only way to walk in the light and to walk in a dark and fallen world is by following him and following him very specifically in prayer. Praying with Jesus, praying like Jesus, praying for our Heavenly Father's lordship and protection over every aspect of our lives. Why? Because this is the way the Lord loves us. He loves us by leading and protecting and caring for us very specifically in prayer. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll walk through the Lord's Prayer, but our focus is at the very end of the Lord's Prayer. And then Jesus' footnote, if you will, in his explanation at the end of the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15, where he elaborates and explains God's forgiveness. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. But just by way of reminder, this word of the Lord, this God-breathed prayer, Jesus begins 
intentionally with a confession of who God is to his disciples. And he ends with a request for God's leadership and God's protection over their lives. Who is leading and protecting our lives? Our prayers speak volumes about who is leading and who is protecting our lives. And for God's beloved children, prayer here, but prayer throughout Scripture has always been about God's leadership in their lives. Prayer has always been a response of faith to God's love and his leadership in their lives. And this is why prayer and obedience to God's word always goes hand in hand. So if we're not praying, it's a high likelihood we are not obeying. And if we're not praying God's word, brothers and sisters, then there's a high likelihood we're not obeying God's word because both of them are God's gifts about how we're to respond to his leadership in our lives. And we see this all the way through scripture for all the great men, all the little men of God. And we see this in Genesis chapter 12 with his word, God calls and leads Abram. And what does he, what does he do? How does he call and how does he lead Abram? Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And what is Abram's response? He obeys. He goes to Canaan. And when he gets to Canaan, the Lord speaks to him again and gives him his promise. And what is Abram's response after he's obeyed God and he's getting ready for the next leg of the journey? Genesis 12 says that he builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And he does so publicly to let all those other Canaanites know, this is my God. This is my life. This is my leader. This is who I'm praying to. Make no bones about it. This is the God who is taking care of me. Brothers and sisters, when we give thanks in a restaurant or a public place, what are we doing? Hopefully we're calling on the name of the Lord and hopefully we're witnessing. Does it save us? No, but is it a testimony? All that I have, all that I am, all that's been given to me, this is from the Lord. And through prayer, Abram, a beloved child of God, looks to the God who has called him to lead him and to protect not only him, but his family and all that he has on this journey of faith through a hostile land where the rest of the folks don't want him there. But then in Genesis 12:10, there's a famine in the land. A test comes his way. There's no food. And what does Abram do in response to this trial and test that God has sent his way? He looks to the wealth of the world for leadership and protection. There's food, there's grain down in Egypt. There's none here. And so he goes to Egypt and not to the Lord for help. Brothers and sisters, when we lose our jobs, when the income doesn't come in, when challenges come our way, when there's work that comes that we cannot do or is above our pay grade. Where's the first place that we look for help? Where is the first place that we look for leadership? The people who are smarter, faster, and taller than we are? Well, Abram goes to Egypt. 
And you know the rest of the story. The result is that Abram lies. He compromises spiritually. He leads his wife into sin. He stumbles. And the Lord has to come and save him. And praise God, we have a God who is faithful even when we are unfaithful and we drag his name through the mud. That doesn't excuse our sin, brothers and sisters. But how often is that our story that our first response is to look to the world or the things of the world or the smart people of the world or the wealth of the world to make our decisions about where kids go to school, the sports that they play, the places that they'll go to college, the things that we need to do, the houses that we buy, every aspect of our life, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. And then we get surprised when there's spiritual compromise, sorrow, and heartbreak. Because who are we looking to lead and protect our family? And this is why God, in love, sent his holy and beloved son, Jesus Christ, into our fallen world. God sent Jesus to lead and protect and save those who are unable to lead and protect and save themselves. And that's you and I, brothers and sisters. And if you are able to lead and protect and save yourself, then you don't need Jesus and you don't need God. And that, brothers and sisters, is our world. And that's the opposite of what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, as we walk through Matthew chapter 6 and we come to the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is doing is he is leading and protecting and saving his sheep. That's what he's doing. He's doing it with his word and he's doing it in prayer. And as you walk through the scriptures, you see how does Jesus love us? He leads us in prayer. He leads us in prayer. And that brings us to our first point for this morning. God's beloved children follow Jesus as king in a fallen world. God's beloved children follow Jesus as king in a fallen world. And very specifically, they follow Jesus as king in prayer. This is the good news of God's word. As Moses led Israel out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is leading his people. And he's leading them as king, and he's protecting them as king, and he's delivering them as king, and he is bringing them out of this world, and he is bringing them into his heavenly kingdom. And he's bringing them into a kingdom that one day even though it begins and it's expressed in our hearts and in churches and in places where people obey his name as king, God's kingdom plan is that one day this king and this kingdom will reign over all the earth. That is God's kingdom plan of salvation. And it's there from Genesis through Revelation. We see here, as you can see in this diagram, God is reigning supreme. And under his kingdom and his kingdom care, he has created a world. But this world, from Genesis 3 onwards, has rejected his leadership and his love and his protection and his care. They've rejected it. And we've rejected it. And what's the result, brothers and sisters? The result is our daily experience. A world of sin and a world of darkness. A world of sin and darkness, brothers and sisters, that is spiraling 
to destruction, and we see it every day on our phones. But the good news of God's word is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into our darkness, and he has come to restore God's righteous life and his love and his leadership in our lives. And how has he come to do that? It's one way and one way alone, brothers and sisters. He does that by leading us, not as a friend, not as a guru, and not as a life coach, but as a king. His terms, not ours. And this is what sets apart God's beloved children from the world. We live on his terms, not our terms. We live on his terms, not the world's terms. And those terms, brothers and sisters, they are good. And we see what sets apart God's beloved children is that they follow Jesus as king and they do so now here in this fallen world and we will do so throughout eternity. And this very specifically is what Jesus is teaching his disciples to do in Matthew 5 through 7. He's teaching his disciples, how do you follow me as king? How do you live a kingdom life in a fallen world? And in the bigger scheme of things and where he goes in prayer is, you can't do it on your own. And you don't have to do it on your own because God has given you himself and everything that you need, God has given because he loves and cares for his beloved children perfectly. And this is exactly what God is doing in prayer and in the prayers that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ leads his disciples in. And this is why Jesus, in Matthew 6, when he's praying, what he's doing is he's teaching and he's leading them how to follow him as king. Pray then like this, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we follow Jesus as king in a fallen world? How do we follow Jesus as king in a fallen workplace? How do we follow Jesus as king in a fallen family? Like Jesus, we begin in prayer, daily surrendering and giving our life, our love, and our loyalty exclusively to our Heavenly Father, to his holy name, to his kingdom rule, to his will being done and not ours. Brothers and sisters, when you wake up every morning, who do you give your loyalty and your love and your fellowship to? When you go to bed at night, who do you give your life and your love and your loyalty to? If we're not giving it to the Lord, we're giving it to someone or something else. The young men who, on occasion, come to seek counsel from me of how to guard their hearts in purity. I typically get them to do a schedule for three days. Write down everything for three days that you do. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Let me see the patterns. Let's have a look at where you are tempted most to fall. Not surprisingly, it doesn't happen typically at work. It happens in their free time. What we refer to as my time. I've earned my time. You deserve a break today. I've worked hard all day. I've given to the man. This is my time. And inevitably, those are the times, my time, 
that things get dark and get ugly because we are dark and ugly people. And when Christ calls us to follow him, he calls us to pledge our allegiance and our love and our loyalty, not to me and my comfort and what makes me feel good, but to the God who has come to die for my sins and forgive me and rescue me from my darkness, not six hours a day or not while I'm distracted with work or not while I'm praying with others at church, but 24-7, brothers and sisters. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. He came to give you a 24-7 salvation. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. How do we follow Jesus as king in a fallen world? Like Jesus, we beg in prayer daily. And we trust and depend daily, not on our work or wealth to get us out of trouble or to make things right. We trust daily on God's perfect provision of love and grace for his children. Why? Because we trust him and not ourselves. We trust him and not ourselves. And then Jesus closes, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Brothers and sisters, how do we follow Jesus as king in a world that is hostile to Christ and his kingdom? A world that is filled with temptation and evil. How do we not stumble and fall when trials and temptations come our way, when life is hard and difficult? Well, Jesus is showing us, isn't he? Like Jesus, we begin in prayer, looking each day to the only lordship and protection that can deliver us from evil, from my sin, from your sin, and from the evil one. And that's not our lordship, and it's not our protection, and it's certainly not our government. And it's certainly not your job or mine. It's the leadership and protection of our Father who is in heaven. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. God's beloved children depend on his leadership and protection in prayer daily. God's beloved children depend on his leadership and protection in prayer daily. Dads, how do you love your kids? Hopefully, it's by leading them in a place where they're safe. Leadership and protection go hand in hand. And this is what Jesus is teaching, and he's also commanding his disciples to do in prayer with his final request in verse 13. It's to walk in their father's leadership and his love, because that is the only safe place in this world, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When I asked that question earlier, who or what is leading your life, where do we find the answers for that? Well, brothers and sisters, the answers are often found in our prayers and in our pursuits. Typically, what we pray for is leading our lives. Typically, what we pursue is what we're following, and that's what's going to show where we're going to end up. You show me your prayers and you show me your pursuits, and I'll show you who or what is leading your life. 
And what leadership does, brothers and sisters, is leadership sets the direction of our lives. It sets the priorities and the paths that we pursue. And according to God's word, in this world, there are only two types of leadership. There's a leadership that loves and cares and protects, and there's a leadership that exploits. It sets a path, it sets a priority for someone else's benefit, or it sets a path and a priority to love and take care of you. And according to God's word, ultimately there are only two kings. There are only two paths, and there are only two directions. Either you are following Jesus to heaven, or you are following Satan to hell. That's it. There's lots of smoke screens. There's lots of camouflage. There's lots of shell games out there to make it seem it's going in one way and it's going in another. But when you come to the heart of the issue and the heart of the matter, when Jesus cuts it straight, you're either living with Jesus or you're dying with the world. Do we believe it? Then we of all people, if that is the case, should be joyful and we should celebrate and we should love and care for others because we have something that this world so desperately needs. And we see with his concluding petition, as Jesus comes in verse 13, it is built on all the other petitions that have come before, and it really is a conclusion and summary of this prayer. Jesus is showing his disciples and us, if by faith we truly follow Jesus as king in this fallen world, if by faith his father is our father, if his kingdom is our kingdom, if his Father's will is indeed our will. If his Father's bread and forgiveness is our bread and forgiveness. Here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus' life will be our life. And for sinners, brothers and sisters, that is good news. All that is Christ is ours. But it comes with a challenge too, doesn't it? If his life is our life, then his path will be our path, the path of a beloved child of God. And as Jesus explains here and also in Matthew 7, his path is not the popular path. His path is not the popular path of this world that's wide and easy, the path that leads to destruction, but many people are on it. Jesus' path is the narrow, it is the hard, and it is the hated path of the cross. The world hates it, very specifically because it is the path of the cross. It's hated by Satan, it's hated by the world, and it's hated by your flesh. And it is a path that is opposed, and it is a path that is difficult, and it is dangerous, and it is costly. Jesus says in John 15, after he lets his disciples know he's going to be with them, he says, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And it's a path that is indeed, brothers and sisters, difficult and dangerous and costly because it is God's way and it is the only way that leads us out of our slavery to sin and death and leads us to life and freedom in his kingdom. What road are you on, brothers and sisters? In the mid-1800s, there was a network of secret routes and safe houses in America, in America, that helped runaway slaves escape to free states first and then to Canada. 
And this was known, as you know, as the Underground Railroad. And though a worthy endeavor, the Underground Railroad was a path that was difficult, and it was dangerous, and it was frequently deadly. Not everybody made it, even though thousands did end up in communities in Canada. Why? Brothers and sisters, this is an evil world. And to get what's t to get to what is right, to get to what is true, to get to way the world should be, it doesn't happen and the world doesn't want it to happen and it doesn't happen without a price and a cost. And Jesus, so different from the leaders of this world, he shows his disciples up front the costs of following him. It's not a shell game of, hey, come follow me. Everything is going to be great. And then you find out along the way. Brothers and sisters, it always it shocks me when people come and tell me how hard their life or their faith or their challenges are. It's like, didn't Jesus say up front, you will have life, you will have love, you will have leadership, you will have protection, but it comes at a cost. And until he comes again, and as he leads us through this wilderness that's called this world, there is going to be hate, and there's going to be hostility, and there's going to be opposition, very specifically because you're following me, and you're on the road to what is right and true. What's it worth to you, brothers and sisters? What was it worth to those slaves who ran away from their masters, went into marshes, went into remote places, walked through places that nobody else would want to go to, and lived as fugitives on the run. Well, there's a greater freedom at stake here. And there's a greater threat. And in verse 13, Jesus exposes the gateway of evil, and it is called temptation. God brings trials, brothers and sisters. He brings tests. And those trials and tests expose what our hearts are, and they also strengthen us for the next leg of the journey. And you'll see as you walk through this pilgrim's progress, you'll go through times where God gives you rest and he restores your soul, and then he brings you into another challenge. And it's not because he's mean or ugly or difficult. What he's doing is he's building your faith, he's strengthening you, and he's preparing you for the next leg of the journey. Because he loves you, he has a place that he has for you to go, and he has called upon you not only to care for yourself, but to minister to others. And we can't minister to others when all we're doing is thinking about ourselves. But as you'll see, and we see this in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan comes in those places where we are being tested by God, and he tries to twist those tests into temptation. God doesn't love you. There's a better way. You should really compromise or do A, B, C, D, and E. You'd be better off, did God really say? And we see that the gateway of evil is called temptation. The predatory lies of the evil one that entice us to stray from Christ, to stumble, and become ensnared by sin. Temptation, the enticement to stop trusting God as a good heavenly father and instead to think that we can do a better job on our own or somebody else is offering us a better deal. And like in the Garden of Eden, the ultimate intent of Satan's lies and temptation is to destroy 
our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's always been, every step of the way. How can I destroy their life by destroying their relationship with their Heavenly Father? How can I bring doubt? And the implication of Jesus' prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, and very specifically the evil one, the implication here is we are children and we are sheep. And just like Adam and Eve, just like Moses, just like Abram, just like King David, just like Peter, and just like every great man of faith throughout Scripture, in and of ourselves, the moment we step away from our dependency on God, we don't stand a chance against the flesh, against Satan, and against the world. And if great men like that King David, a man after God's own heart, can commit adultery and kill a man. What are you and I capable of doing, brothers and sisters? The good news of God's word is that he does not abandon his children. And so often, like King David and others, though the earthly consequences continue, he comes and he cleans them up. And we see what our great need is. We need to know God's love, and we need to know his forgiveness. And we need a savior and a shepherd and a king 24-7 who is greater than the temptations and the evil of this world. We need a savior and a shepherd and king who's able to lead and protect and deliver us 24-7 from the evil one. And there is, brothers and sisters, only one. And that's the testimony of Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And he's tempted by the devil to choose comfort, to choose compromise, and to choose the kingdoms of this world over the cross. But Jesus, in obedience to God's will and word, what does he choose? For love of the Father and for love in you and I, he chooses the cross rather than the comforts and kingdoms of this world. And here... In prayer, Jesus provides everything his disciples need to overcome temptation and the devil. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, brothers and sisters. Doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. Doesn't mean people aren't going to call you names. And it doesn't mean you're not going to be without suffering and pain. But Jesus shows us with this, what is it that matters most? Health, it's important. Food, it is important. A good education, yes, those things are of value. But are they of more value than your relationship with your Heavenly Father? Are they more important than being protected by everything that tears your life apart, your family apart, and your love for the Lord and one another? Well, Jesus made it clear what he chose. And as he comes in this prayer, he provides for the disciples everything that they need to overcome. What does he give them? He gives them his personal presence and his personal leadership in prayer. He gives them his spirit and his word. And it's his spirit and his word that leads them in prayer to show them what their priorities should be in the direction that they need to go. 
We think of Christian biblical decision-making and people will often come and they'll say, Pastor Mark, should I take this job or should I take this job? Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just take whatever job and tell me after, by the way, I took this job. By the way, I asked this person out. Okay, thanks for letting me know. And they sort of treat me sometimes like I'm a Catholic priest, like, yeah, they've let me know they're good with God. But what Jesus is pointing out as he comes in this prayer is that biblical decision-making begins with knowing who your Heavenly Father is. Biblical decision-making begins with knowing that you belong to his kingdom and that you've been created to do his will. Biblical decision-making begins with seeing that, yes, you need daily bread, but it's not more important than the righteousness of your walk and walking closely with the Lord. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. And he's guiding them to come and to look to the Lord for his guidance. And the guidance that they need is not what's the next job I get or not, hey, am I going to have friends or where's my wedding venue going to be? The guidance that they need and the leadership is how do I handle temptation and how do I handle sin? How do I handle my sin and the sin of all the other people in my family and the sin in this world? And the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is he is the one who is able to guide us. And as he does so, he guides us to his Father. He shows us that the guidance we need every step of the way is to learn how to be dependent on God for his leadership in our lives and for his protection. Now, let me ask you a question. It's what I do best, right? Asking questions. How often do we look to the Lord in prayer for guidance about how we deal with our sin and the sin of others? How often do we look to the Lord for his leadership and protection against the evil of this world and the evil in my heart. Well, Jesus, the implication here is he's calling his disciples to do this regularly, intentionally, and daily, desperately. It's not, whoops, after the fact. It's, man, you need to be desperately coming to the Lord because you are in a spiritual battle and it's coming for you, it's coming for your wife, it's coming for your kids. And you don't have the strength to stand up to it, but your Heavenly Father does. Dads, how often do we look at the size of our retirement account or our college fund or our income to see how we're going to protect our kids. And we feel they've got a roof over their heads, they've got the college expenses taken care of, they're protected. Until terrible tragedies happen and you open up the newspaper and you see a college fund is not going to protect our kids from a shooter in a school or from the ugliness of this world. But there is a God who can protect their heart and their soul, who is sovereign and who works all things for good. Does that mean we won't suffer? No. But does it mean 
that we can be united and protected in this life and the next life in our relationship with a God who loves us perfectly. If we really believe that, if we really believe the world was evil, and if we really believe that God is greater than the evil in this world, brothers and sisters, we would be on our knees for our kids, our wives, and our church members praying for God to protect them from the sin of this world and the evil of this world. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. This is Jesus talking to Simon Peter. And what does he say? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I have what? How does Jesus love and protect us? But I have what? But I have what? I have prayed for you. Do you know that your Lord and Savior intercedes on your behalf before the Heavenly Father and he prays for you? I have prayed for you that your what? Yeah, that your faith may not fail. He doesn't pray that he gets a better house or a better job. He doesn't pray about how best to use his time. He doesn't pray that his kids get into a good college. He says, I pray that your faith may not fail trusting and depending on the Lord's protection. And when you have turned again, you're going to stumble. And when you have turned again, how beautiful is the Savior's love. I haven't abandoned you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Take some time today, maybe in between halftime, during the Pepsi commercial. Have a look at First Peter and read through it and see how Peter, after he stumbled and been restored, goes on to encourage people who are suffering. It's nothing short of beautiful as you see those connections. And what does Peter say? Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm good. I got it covered. Don't sweat it. Worry about the other disciples. I got this one always terrifies me when people tell me I'm good, I got it covered. Then we go to Matthew 26, 41, and Jesus tells Peter as all the disciples are snoozing and sleeping, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's warning Peter, we are no match for sin and temptation. We're no match for the flesh and the world and the devil, but God is. And the way he loves and protects us is in prayer. This brings us to our final point for this morning. God's beloved children know and depend on his forgiveness. God's beloved children know and depend on his forgiveness. This is where Jesus ends the Lord's Prayer. He comes back and talks about forgiveness again. Do you think it's important to him? Charles Quarles, a New Testament scholar, says, when Jesus' disciples pray, he wants them to reflect constantly on their dependence on God for everything, their survival, their salvation, and their sanctification, everything. And when God provides their daily bread, gracious forgiveness, rescue from temptations to which they would have otherwise succumbed, they will be reminded 
that all good things come from him and they will grant him the praise that is his due. Brothers and sisters, how often do we consider how much more we would sin, how much more ugliness would be in our lives, how much more damage we would do to one another if God hadn't come in and restrained us and shown us mercy and stepped in and said, enough, I'm stepping in here. We need to be thankful every minute and every day, not looking down at other people, not pointing the finger, not condemning and saying, hey man, these people are so terrible. It's like, whoa. What would we be without Christ interceding on our behalf and praying for us? And as we think about what he's calling the disciples to do, which is simply to walk in God's love and his care, we see that this is essentially the gospel. That God knows and loves and cares for his beloved children perfectly in Christ. And he simply calls us to trust in him and to receive this love and care. And in Matthew 6, this is exactly what Jesus is leading his disciples in, in and through prayer. And as you look at this, he devotes the whole first half of this prayer to showing his disciples who God is and what he desires. There's a little insert in the middle, give us this day our daily bread. And then the second half is devoted almost entirely to addressing sin and evil God's way. First half, who God is and what he desires. Second half, how God handles and deals with sin. And brothers and sisters, as you look at this, you see this is really Jesus addressing our two greatest needs. What are our two greatest needs? That you would know who God is and that you would know his love and you would know his will for your life. And that you would know how God deals and handles with your sin. And that, brothers and sisters, is righteous leadership. It's the only leadership that saves sinners. Every other type of leadership exploits sinners. Vote for me. Come to my church. Be part of my ministry. Serve here. Let me show you this vision and this bigger picture that you can be part of so that my leadership advances. Jesus shows us here the only leadership that loves is a leadership that shows people who God is and what he desires and how he handles sin. When we think about that earlier this morning, you heard the testimony about Eli and Eli's son. Eli's a priest. Eli's been called. He's the big man. He's got these two sons. He even rebukes his two sons. But at the end of the day, he's getting fat off of being the head priest or the high priest, right? He doesn't do a whole lot about sin. And as you look at it, yeah, if people ask him, he'll tell them a little bit about God or he'll ask them what's going on. But is he really in all of this showing people that God is holy, 
that God desires his people to be holy and God has provided a way for his people to be holy. No. And so his leadership is exploitative and it is wicked. He honors his sons more than God, right? That's what it says there. Jesus, his leadership is different. He personally comes into your life. He personally leads you in prayer. With his spirit and his word, he guides you with only the intent to show you the beauty and goodness of his heavenly father, his holiness, what his father desires for you, his father's good plans for you according to his word, and his father's protection and care for you that you will not sin and destroy your life or the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, do you lead this way? Is that the influence that you have on others? Fathers, do you lead your children this way? And is your leadership demonstrated on how well they can throw a football? Or do they know the Lord? And do they know how to handle and deal with their sin the only way they can, which is coming to Christ? Husbands, do we lead our wives this way? And do they see the grace of God in us? And after spending time with us, is there an aroma that comes of grace and truth where they behold God is good? We're broken. My husband isn't perfect, but God is good and he's gracious and he's doing a work. Do the pastors and the people you follow lead this way? If not, it ain't Jesus you're following. And it's not Jesus who they're following. As Jesus comes to the end of the prayer in verse 14 and 15, Jesus circles back on this issue of forgiveness. He says in verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And you see here what Jesus' burden is, is that the disciples will understand and truly know who their heavenly Father is and how he loves. This is what this is about. He's showing them that God's love and his forgiveness is free, but it is costly. God's love and forgiveness is infinite, but it is not unconditional. It has terms. And the fundamental term is that you are a beloved child of God who is walking in his grace by faith and not strutting your stuff and your own works. Now, I believe we have some copies of sheets on forgiveness. Did we, were we able to hand those out? Okay, so you may have those sheets. And that's where we're heading. We live in a world where sin is either a figment of our imagination or a whoops or a mistake. And as far as forgiveness goes in the history of the church, it goes either from the Catholic confessional booths to Jesus died for me all in the evangelical church, so I don't need to talk about sin. I don't need to talk about forgiveness because it's all taken care of, right? We have those two extremes. I'm forever beating myself up and I'm forever doing penance because I don't know whether I'm completely forgiven or in the other end of uh, the other side of the coin, it's like it's all been taken care of. Jesus died on the cross once and for all. I can go and do whatever I want. And as we see 
both of those are a distorted gospel that takes us away from the purity and goodness and the sufficiency of God's love. And Jesus' burden here is that the disciples would know that God's love is both sovereign and sufficient. And so what Jesus does is he walks through both in this prayer and also at the end, he shows us first what sin is. Sin is an offense to a holy God who has loved us perfectly. This is who your father is. He is holy and he is good. What is sin? It's a debt. It's a moral and legal obligation to God. It is a trespass. A trespass is an intentional offense against someone else, both vertically and horizontally. And Jesus also points out, as far as sin goes, our sin is first and foremost a debt and offense against God. But guess what? It's something we do to one another on a regular basis. That's why he qualifies it. Are we forgiving others? And that's why he points out the condition that God gives for his forgiveness is that we also are forgiving others. For if you forgive others their trespasses, their offenses against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And so Jesus is showing his disciples there is only one remedy. It's God's forgiveness. And as you go through that sheet, we qualify and Jesus shows forgiveness is not forgetting about something. Forgiveness is not excusing something. Forgiveness is not overlooking or just not talking about something. Forgiveness is not avoiding the issue. Forgiveness is not an attitude or a feeling. Is there an attitude associated with forgiveness? Yes, it's an attitude and heart of love. But forgiveness, brothers and sisters, as I've heard evangelical pastors say, well, to me, forgiveness is an attitude or mostly an attitude. No. And neither it is the power of positive thinking. Forgiveness, as Jesus points out here, is a demonstration of God's love. It's a demonstration of God's grace that pays for the penalty and the price of our sin. It pays for the price of our debt, and it pays for the penalty of our transgressions. And it is costly because it costs God his son. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did God do this? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God's forgiveness, free and unlimited, but costly and conditional. And so what are God's criteria for forgiveness? And I walk through this, brothers and sisters, because I believe so many people in the church have never known the sweetness and the freedom of being forgiven of their sins because we either don't talk about it or we pretend it doesn't exist. And the first that Jesus brings in his prayer, he shows is confession. Confession, not Catholic confession where we're sitting in a booth and forgive me, Father, because I did this, 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 and go and do seven Hail Marys. Confession, homologeo, is that we agree with God about what his word says about us and our sin. It's not a whoops and a mistake. 
It's that sin and our sin is an intentional offense that deceives, defiles, and destroys. And what God calls in confession is the only time the prosperity gospel comes to bear. We need to name it and claim it. You go through Paul, he names the sin and he claims the sin. You own it, it's going to take you to hell. And here specifically is the name. And he does it in love because until we name what the cancer and disease is, we do not have a treatment for it. But God does, and it's Christ's death on the cross. And we see this even in the passage with Eli's sons. You see what Eli is, boys, what you're doing isn't good. You're sleeping with these ladies. It's not good. Why do you do this? There's no taking responsibility. Yeah, we can come and say, hey, I sinned, but do we name it what God calls it, and do we claim it and take responsibility? My sin has defiled me and those I've sinned against. My sin has severed my fellowship with the Lord. My sin has done damage to you. Please forgive me, Lord. And to those I've offended, please forgive me for defiling you, deceiving you, and destroying our relationship and destroying good things in your life. Why do we do it? Not because it earns us a place, but because it begins to show us the grace we need is not our grace, it's the Lord's grace. Second criteria, repentance and faith. Charles Quarles writes, repentance is a requirement for divine forgiveness. Those who are truly repentant will express to others the same mercy they hope God will lavish on them. The turning of the heart Third requirement, faith in God's justice, not our own. When we come to God and we ask for forgiveness, we will only receive it if we believe justice has been served and it's been paid for on the cross. And my work and my efforts can't fix it. When I trust in myself, it's what I said. Did I say it? All the people said, well, if you had just said it in a nicer way, Pastor Mark, maybe they would have forgiven you. It's not in the smoothness of the delivery that we need to show love. The idea is our faith and our hope is in Christ and his justice. And because of that, when we are forgiven, we are forgiven. And we are set free from guilt. And we can rest assured as we go to bed. Christ has paid the price. I am free. And brothers and sisters, this is why I believe so often the blessing of forgiveness is not known. Where we are free from guilt, our hearts are filled with joy and grace because Christ has paid the penalty in full. And when others come and ask me and say, Mark, forgive me for being unkind to you, I can say he paid it and he paid it in full. Anything that you've done to me is tiny in comparison to what I've done to the Lord, and he's forgiven me of that. How can I withhold forgiveness from you? And so, brothers and sisters, as we close, my heart's prayer and desire for all of us is that we would know the forgiveness of the Lord, and we would know his love, and we would know how great The mercy and goodness of our God is because, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and this is his leadership and love in your life and mine, that we would know this and we would know this in prayer. Let's close. Lord Jesus, 
you have given us a forgiveness that works. But it is a forgiveness with a condition. That we receive it as your forgiveness. A forgiveness that is true and just and good. Help us this day, Lord Jesus, to follow your leadership and to walk in your love and to stand in the forgiveness that you alone can give and receive it in such a way that we give it to others generously and joyfully because of who you are. In your name we pray, amen.